Hi, and welcome to the Brooklyn Symphony Orchestra podcast. I'm Sarah O'Keefe, and what you just heard was a clip from our last concert. That was Sibelius's Symphony No. 2 in D major. So in this episode, I'm going to be interviewing Paul Steinfeld. He's our principal clarinet player and has been for many years. He's a really wonderful musician and a good friend to all of us in the orchestra. He has been absent for the entirety of this season thus far. This is his first concert back. And that's because he last year had a kidney transplant. What's incredible about Paul's story is that he received his kidney from John Riedel, who's one of our viola players and was president of the orchestra for several years. So I'm going to talk to him about that today. I'm also going to talk to him about our upcoming concerto competition. We had auditions a few weekends ago, and we have three really wonderful young musicians who are going to be playing with us May 22nd at the Brooklyn Museum. And as an added bonus, we get to hear a story about the time that Paul was on The Daily Show. So before I talk to Paul, I want to tell you a little bit about our upcoming concert. Uh, We will be playing three pieces, the first of which is Cacheturian's Masquerade Suite. I've done a little bit of research, so I have some fun facts for you. The Masquerade Suite was originally written to accompany a play written by a Russian poet. Kachaturian himself was a Soviet-Armenian composer who kind of incredibly was a, a favored part of the Soviet composing circle. There was a circle of Soviet composers. His music was briefly deemed anti-people, and he was cast out of the group. But after a short period of time, I guess it was decided that his music was actually pro-people, so he was let back in. He was heavily influenced by Armenian and Russian folk music. So our second piece is Samuel Barber's Knoxville Summer of 1915. The piece is based on a prose poem by James A.G. It's about a night of his life in Knoxville in 1915 when he was a young boy out on his front lawn with his father and his mother, and it's a really wonderful little piece of summertime. And he wrote this prose poem in 90 minutes, so the next time you have 90 minutes, think about that. Our third piece is by Antonin Dvorak. It's the Symphony No. 7 in D minor. Dvorak was a protege of Brahms and wrote this piece after completing several very successful symphonies, and it was specifically commissioned by the London Royal Philharmonic. So I'm here with Paul Steinfeld, who is our principal clarinet player. Hi, Paul. Hi, Sarah. How are you doing? I'm doing great. So thanks for coming in to talk to me today. How long have you been with the BSO? I don't remember exactly. I think it's around 18 years. I joined the group in the late 90s. I had been playing with a couple of other local groups, and I met Nick when he was director of uh, the prep center at Brooklyn College. Both my kids were there for the uh, Saturday music lessons. And uh, one thing led to another. I still remember this. My son was in in junior high school in Old Borough Orchestra. So I would drive him to these rehearsals somewhere in South Brooklyn. And these kids would be squawking away. I mean, he was a good player, but the orchestra was, you know, you get a bunch of yeah. uh, young kids. It's, it's not perfect. Yeah. And my reaction was that I got jealous. I said, I want to do this. You missed it, yeah. <laughs> so I started looking around and eventually got into BSO, which has just been a fantastic experience for me. 
You've been our principal player for... About eight years, I think. Just found the, this recording of the Bartok Miraculous Mandarin, which I think we did in the fall of 2008, and that was my first terrifying experience <laughs> as principal. It's an impossible piece. You are very exposed as, as a principal clarinet player. You know, it depends on the composer. There are usually little bits for each instrument. Mm -hmm. And every once in a while, there are extended solos that are fun to play in the concert coming up. Uh, there are a number of things like that in the Cacciaturian. Yes. And then little um, sort of like two-measure, not complete solo things, but uh, sort of uh, solo lines in uh, in the Dvorak. And then, there of course, are. in the... Um, in the piece we're doing with uh, the barber, the barber with yeah. soprano, uh, the woodwinds are just one on part. So there are a number of solo uh, solo lines there that are lots of fun. Yeah, the barber's a really interesting piece. I'm excited to play that with the group. Me too. So you've been playing the clarinet for. I'm guessing you started when you were pretty young. Uh, yes. Um, what's your What's your musical background? Well, I started playing clarinet when I was around six or seven. I don't remember exactly, but everyone in my family played something. My father had been a club pianist, or no to, uh, to put this in um, in more accurate terms, he played in speakeasies. Really? <laughs> he was a classically trained pianist, but he also played jazz. He loved Gershwin, oh, loved wow. everything. So there was always music in the house. My mother played violin, my brother played violin and guitar, my sister played uh, piano and oboe. I mean, as a kid, I remember seeing my father and sister with this huge thing opened up on the piano playing Beethoven symphonies for four hands. Oh, wow. So we just, we always did Musical stuff. So house. that was, yeah, yeah, it was lots of fun. Was that here in New York? In Queens, in Jackson Queens. Heights. Nice. Speakeasies in New York sounds like <laughs> you have some good stories. One of the really formative experiences for me is that <clears throat> with the help of a wonderful junior high school music teacher, I applied to and got into the High School of Music and Art, mm. which was then in Harlem. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, now it's down at Lincoln Center as the LaGuardia School. Oh, okay. It was a spectacular experience. I mean, I was in there when I was 13 years old. I barely you know, knew where the subway was. Took the train into Harlem every day. Half the day was academics. Yeah. And then half the day was a full musical education. It was sight singing, theory, composition, band, orchestra. And the orchestras there were just spectacular. So that I got that love of the, the sound and experience of playing in, in ensembles when I was a kid, you know, from 13 to 16. So you've been playing most of your life. Have you always been in New York? Did you hop around? Um, I've spent most of my life in New York. I was overseas a few times. When I graduated college, I was mm. in the Peace Corps in Turkey. Oh, really? So I taught English in Turkey for two years, which was really wonderful. Yeah. And in my first career in graduate school, I was an archaeologist, so I spent summers for about 12 years in the Middle East, either in Turkey or in Israel. That's wonderful. And yeah, it was fun. Yeah. What did you study specifically? Um, uh Anthropological archaeology, okay. method and theory, and Near Eastern prehistory, which is great fun. Mm -hmm. um, I loved it until it finally dawned on me when we were about to have our second kid that I also had to make a living. <laughs> <laughs>
And then uh, I wound up moving into uh, corporate IT work because in my graduate field work, I was using computer modeling for trying to reconstruct uh, prehistoric economies. So I had a a very light knowledge of computers, of just a couple of very small things. And I used that as a bridge into the corporate world, and that's pretty much what I've done since. Oh, wow. I feel like a lot of people end up making jumps like that at some point in their careers. I started out as a history major. Me too. Um, (laughs) Oh, yeah, well, there you go. And now I'm in compliance in the financial world. There's, you gotta, you gotta uh, start to make money at some point, right? Kids but, are a big incentive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing I ask people to talk about is like the difficulties of playing your instrument, and that's hard to describe without like physically like being able to show it to someone. But it's a reed instrument. It's a single reed instrument. Single reed instrument. And so what does that mean? It means that. Every day is miserable until you can get the read just right. Okay. Um, you can, you know, like any read player, you usually have, a, I, I always have eight uh, playable reads in my case that I work on every week from, not a huge variation, but from softer to harder, basically. But in order to create a read, I mean, I don't build them from scratch the way an oboe player might, but if you buy a box of of reeds, they're not all going to sound great. But if mm. you work on them, I have sanding blocks and uh, different things I do, there's a break-in period, you can adjust it so that you get a sound and a strength that's right for you on that day. And then the weather changes and it's out the window. <laughs> mm. So every time the temperature or humidity or air pressure change, it affects everything. So it's very frustrating because one day you get something that just the articulation is great for the tonguing and fast passages and attacks from high to low. And then the next day, you just can't play it. So, you know, you switch, you try something else. Oh, man. And um, I think every instrument has its own headaches. <laughs> mm-hmm. The care and feeding of, of yeah, an but, instrument, yeah. You know, the, the bottom line is that you have to practice. You have mm-hmm. to learn your lines. It always helps to know the piece really well so that you know what to expect. And for for something like the barber, which I've heard but had never played before, mm-hmm. uh, it's a little complex because the, the context is so fragile. It's just one of each of the woodwind instruments. There's strings and, and a few brass. So I spend quite a bit of time studying the piece from the score and then marking my part once I got it mm. for the cues. You know, if I have three measures rest and I have no cues and the let's say it's in 7-8 at that point and maybe Nick is going to or the singer is going to change the tempo a little bit, that that's a, a train wreck waiting to happen. Yeah. So I put in whatever word the soprano is going to sing at the beginning of each measure or at the end of each measure, things like that. You know, I'll make a note that this is an English horn solo or here's a trumpet solo. Mm-hmm. So, you know, over time you basically just learn the thing. Yeah. But when you're first reading it, that's a different kind of work that has to go into being ready. Yeah. And uh, and then you know for some of the other things for the you know the faster runs and like the the cacciatorian that we're about to do is not difficult aside from the fact that it goes so fast. Yeah. So that just takes a lot of you know you have to get the muscle memory into your fingers.
So we're all very excited to have you back. You've been out. Oh, yes. You've been gone for most of the season. That's correct. We're all very happy that you're back and happy and healthy. Thank you. You had a pretty incredible year last year. A little bit of a detour. I don't want to bore our friends with with a medical resume, although it's a very impressive medical resume. (laughs) (laughs) But... Basically, over the course of a very long time, I slid into kidney failure. I sort of knew about it for decades, but I felt fine, so I just didn't pay a lot of attention. A little over a year ago, it started to get very clear that I was going to have to either go into dialysis or transplant, and I knew nothing about either. So I started researching. I chose Weill Cornell Hospital as the best in this region, and uh, turned out to have been a pretty good choice. Yeah. I had an orientation with them, and from what I had read, I thought, you know, if you get on a waiting list for someone who's passed away but is an organ donor, depending on blood type, it can be five, six-year wait. Wow. And then during that time, you're on dialysis three days a week. So it started yeah. getting a little serious. But at Weill Cornell, they're very big proponents of living organ donation. Mm. Um, so I started reading up on that, and uh, it's very dramatically better results mm-hmm. in terms of success, longevity, and so on. Mm-hmm. But then the question is, well, you know, how do you find somebody? So, yeah. of course, you know, we started with family. Well, it turns out that all of the closest people, including my wife and kids and my brother, were medically ineligible. Oh. Um, they're very rigorous criteria. So the hospital um, transplant team coached us on how to reach out through social media mm-hmm. to do this, the thing yeah. that's almost impossible to do on your own, which is to say, hey, can I have your kidney? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's not exactly a matter for conversation. So my kids put... Not t- everyday conversation anyway. Well, yeah. it became so for me, yeah. but it, certainly yeah. not in the beginning. And yeah. Beyond which, I've always been relatively private about, you know, medical issues. Nobody needs to know that. But all of a sudden, it became very important Mm -hmm. to get past that and to be public about it. So my kids put together a fabulous Facebook page. And it's part of what the hospital calls the Kidney Champions Program. So they were Mm -hmm. my kidney champions. Mm -hmm. And they sent it out to their friends. I sent it to my friends. Within a week, it had reached about 500 people, and those people reposted. So in terms of just educating people, it, it had quite a, quite a big span. Yeah. At the last summer reading rehearsal, I was still in orchestra at that point, and John was still, John Riedel was still president. So I came up to him and I said, John, look, you know, I'm going to have to miss a few concerts in the next season. I just wanted you to know about it. Yeah. And I, I I was just guessing that he had seen this, but I didn't know at that point that he wasn't on Facebook. So he said, what's going on? So he said, I, I said, I, need, I have to have a kidney transplant and another surgery before that. And just like that, he said, oh, I could be a donor. Oh, and my gosh. And I said, John, that's incredible, but there's a lot to learn. Let me send you some links and some articles. Yeah. And then, you know, come back with questions, and I'll be happy to put you in touch with people. Yeah. So I got home from rehearsal around 11. By about midnight, I had sent him 
this little email. Got an email from him at 9.30 the next morning saying, thanks, Paul, I read everything, and I'm already registered at the hospital. And oh my gosh. it was John was just like that from beginning to today. We're, we're probably going to have lunch again next week. Um, he is a spectacular person. Yeah, he's. A, I should say he's he's one of our viola players. In addition oh, to being I, our yeah, president, I'm sorry. I, I like to tag people by their instruments. <laughs> <laughs> I just assumed everyone did. Yeah, that. they do now. So um, no need to go into all the other yeah. things. It was a rough year. But the outcome has been spectacular. And the minute they told me I could play again, I had the instruments out and started practicing so that I could get back for this concert and uh, sort of hope John comes to this one. (laughs) I hope he will, too. It's been a while since we've seen him as well. Well, he Um, he took a year off from mm -hmm. orchestra. I think he was already intending on doing that. Yes. um, Having served as our president for, I think, two years. It might have been more than that. It might have been more than that, yeah. So, yeah, I, I took, um, I was out for the first three yeah. concerts, and here I am. So wonderful to have you back, and we're it's so glad you're okay. It's such a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. Um, it was announced during one of our rehearsals, first off, that you needed the transplant, and then that John was, was providing uh, the kidney, and that was just the most wonderful news for all of I us. I heard that there was a pretty electric reaction across yeah. the orchestra. My longtime friend Stan Cushell, who's in the cello section, was very close with yeah. our family. So he, he told me that he had made an announcement and that people were just sort of gasping when they heard that John was doing this. So, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, it's a pretty spectacular thing. It really is. And, you know, it's it's wonderful on so many counts. I mean, as a personal, uh, precious gift, I mean, that's just yeah. a spectacular thing to do. But when there's so much bad news in the world, you know, you sort of lose sight of all the wonderful things and wonderful people all around you. Yeah. And the the sort of the silver lining for this whole uh, series of tests. And I, I also wound up on dialysis for a few months. Okay. And then surgery and everything that goes with yeah. it is that you just realize there are a huge number of spectacular people around who are caring and good and quietly just doing wonderful things. So, you know, John, of course, is at the top of the list, but the surgeons, the medical team, the post-transplant team, unbelievable. So I'm feeling immensely lucky and grateful. And your kids did a really wonderful job with that page. I remember when I saw it, they just really did a great job of putting that out. That's the truth. Yeah, it was such wonderful and inspiring news and like, like the best expression of what the orchestra is for a lot of people is this wonderful connection for all of us. It's a, it's a, look, we do this because we love music, but mm-hmm. it's also a real community. Yes. And the number of emails and responses through the website that mm-hmm. I got from the orchestra were just yeah. really heartwarming. And, you know, when you're going through tough times, that, that stuff makes a big difference. So, yeah, thanks to everybody. <laughs> well, we're very glad that you're back. So you're back now for the uh, for the concert, but the first time I saw you was a, after your absence was a few weeks ago to judge our concerto competition. Yeah, that was interesting. So I volunteered and helped shepherd the kids from the rehearsal space to the audition space, but you actually sat and listened to everyone. So we did a one day of auditions. One long day. One very long day of <laughs> auditions. <laughs> I forget how many. It was, might have been... 16, 18 kids. Yeah, I think that's about right. Kids. Yeah. And from a six-year-old who played 
uh, part of a concerto, just a jaw-dropping. I saw she was one of the first ones. Incredible. Yes, yes. To some high school kids who are absolutely on their way to great professional careers if they choose to. Yeah. Uh, was really thrilling. And I, I think Nick asked me to sit in in part uh, because four of the contestants were clarinetists. And, uh, of course, I you know, have opinions about that. Yes. And then, uh, let me see, there was flute, French horn. Um, there, there might have been another wind player. Uh, yeah, I, I remember a yeah. bunch of violins, as you often yes. get, and then I think a, a couple cellists. Uh, but yeah, a lot of clarinet players. Had you ever done anything like this before? I'm curious about how you go about judging. Look, you want the, each of them to be technically in command of the piece. And particularly with the with the wind players, I was a little more attuned to issues with embouchure and breath control and, mm-hmm. and things that, you know, that's not the reason to choose them or not choose them, but it affects uh, the whole thing. But there's... You know, just as uh, when you go to a concert, sometimes you just have a a full body reaction to something that is thrilling or beautiful. And, you know, part of that is the passion of the player. Part of it is what they do with the interpretation of the music and the range of expression. Um, Part of it is the beauty of what they do with their instrument. Mm. So there are a lot of things. But, um, boy, when you hear... Something like, let's say, the El Garcello concerto that we're going to hear mm-hmm. at the last concert. I'm excited about that. You just know this. This is this is tops, mm-hmm. and I've always found it uh, very exciting when I see young kids aspiring to that. To have, I mean, you know that, you know, as you do. I love classical music. I love orchestral music, and mm. it's wonderful to see people coming up in the tradition and putting in all of the years of hard work that are required to be able to do that yeah. and who uh, in in turn are also loving what they do because that comes through in the music. So yeah, yeah, that was a great experience. It was really fun to be there that day and get to watch yep. them play. So the concerto competition, the concert will be on May 22nd at 2 p.m. I'll be there. Yeah, I will too. <laughs> Um, and so we had three finalists. Um, I don't remember the pieces off the top of my head. Do you remember uh, them all? There's a violin concerto, and at the moment I'm forgetting which. There's a part of the, I think, two movements from the Elgar Cello Concerto mm-hmm. and the opening movement of the Mozart Clarinet Concerto, which I I know pretty well. Yeah, I'd imagine. <laughs> and a very talented, all three of them. Um, very exciting. And this is the first time we've done anything like this before. That's right. I think it's a great way to open up connections to the conservatories, mm-hmm. um, to wider audiences, because each of those kids you know is going to bring people in. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, that's exciting. Expand the community a little bit. Thank you so much for, for coming in. That's a pleasure. Thanks for asking me. This was really wonderful. Enjoyed it. Thanks. Okay, see you at the concert. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> oh, yeah. Tell me this. Oh, this is, um, can I even remember? So what you don't hear is that Dana, our producer, stepped in and told Paul that she was asked by another member of the orchestra that she needs to ask him about the Daily Show. Yeah, that, 
I think that was Nick setting, setting me up. Um, oh, this goes back a long time. Um, there was not, not the most recent of the big storms, but like 10, 15 years ago, there was <clears throat> um, a, a big hurricane. And um, as a result, many of the insurance companies dropped New York coverage. So I had, uh, I don't even remember which companies, one of the big name companies. Um, I had, um, I think, just home insurance with them and car insurance with somebody else. So I get a letter saying because um, of the, the great danger of coastal surges and storms, um, we're not covering you after this year. So I got really pretty miffed. So I wrote to them and I said, I'm in the middle of Brooklyn. I'm four and a half miles from the coast. I'm 50 feet above sea level. What are you talking about? <laughs> well, it was, I quote the New York, I, I used to work for MetLife, okay. you know, in IT, but I knew a little bit about the insurance business. So I called the state or wrote to the state insurance commissioner and said, what's going on? He said, they have a right to drop regions. <clears throat> So I, I must have written a bunch of letters knowing that nothing would ever come of it. And um, I think I wrote to the Brooklyn Borough President. And uh, you know, I was just venting. I, I knew they couldn't do anything. So sometime later, somebody calls me from the Borough President's office and said, um, The Daily Show is doing some interviews on... Um, this whole problem with the insurance companies, can we interview? So I said, sure. I mean, yeah. I, I don't think I even knew what The Daily Show was at that point. Yeah. So my kids were sort of warning me that, you know, this is a setup. You're going <laughs> to get dinged. So I came back from work on a Friday night. It was terribly hot. And I don't know what went on at work, but I was in a really bad mood. So this camera crew comes into our living room and, you know, had a couple of air conditioners on, and uh, they, the, the guy doing the sound said, oh, that's too noisy, turn it off. So we were sweltering. It was, you know, ridiculous. And I, I started really getting annoyed. So first they, they had that set up. They took us out. They walked me down the street, and they said, any other neighbors who, um, who had this problem? So I have a neighbor down at the end of my block named Dave Newman. He had also run into this. So the guy's eyes lit up, and I, I didn't see what I was walking into. So later, when he was inter interviewing me, he kept on calling me Seinfeld instead of Steinfeld. <laughs> so, Newman. Oh. you know, I, I pushed back a little bit. So we go down <laughs> the block with the camera crew, and I I actually was stupid enough to think they were going to talk about insurance. <laughs> so they come down. I introduce my neighbor, and he says, no, man. <laughs> so it was all downhill from there. We got back, <laughs> we got back into, my, into my house, and I was trying to talk about the issues. And I yeah. was just completely stupid. They were just, they set me up one after another. So in the middle of... Um, whatever I was trying to go on about insurance, uh, the the guy interviewing me was Jason, somebody, I can't remember his name, was one of the, the regulars, said, uh, tell me a joke. 
And at this point, I was I was hot and I was tired and I just fed up. I said, no. He said, tell me a joke. I said, that's your job. I don't want to tell a joke. I want to talk about insurance. I was just completely missing the whole thing. So we went on for about an hour like this. And of course, they used about you know yeah. 20 seconds of my, yeah. of my thing. So um, the thing aired, and it, it was about potential flooding on in Brooklyn. They had this guy, Jason, with a, a rubber tube around his waist, uh, dumpster diving in the middle of... I mean, it was just... I, I should have done my homework. <laughs> <laughs> so it aired, and... Um, it was a it was a funny segment. My part was negligible, but the thing that was fun for me is that the next day I heard from about twenty people I hadn't heard from for years, you know, people friends from college and from the Peace Corps and whatever, saying, "Oh, I saw you on TV last night." <laughs> so that's the uh, oh, that's fantastic, Dana. That one's for you. <laughs> awesome. All Thank right. you. Thanks. Please check brooklynsymphonyorchestra.org for more episodes of this podcast and to purchase tickets for our next concert. It's Sunday, April 17th at 2 p.m. at the Brooklyn Museum. I'm Sarah O'Keefe, and thank you for listening.